Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena, or as we used to say, Exploding Unexplained Phenomena. <laughs> Merry Christmas to one and all from the folks here at KZUM and Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. It's sure great to be with you, whether you're at the workplace or just kicking around home. We've got a great show for you today. We're going to start out with Charlene and Pet Talk, and then Lloyd Arbach and uh, Invisible Signals. And our main guest is Reverend Dr. Jimmy Shelbourne. We'll be talking about uh, the historicity, the historical nature of Jesus, and of grace, and other topics. Hope you can stay tuned for the whole show. A lot of things to uh, share with you this morning. I've got Sulawesi coffee in my cup. What's in your cup? Are you guys and gals coffee drinkers or tea drinkers? I imagine there's a few young folks that are probably having a soda about now. They used to say Dr. Pepper was like a 10, 2, and 4, trying to introduce that for the, the coffee breaks. Instead of having a coffee, have a Dr. Pepper. Did you ever get uh, interested in Dr. Pepper, Jim? I've been through all of the common sodas over my lifetime, and... Uh, you know, once I hit a certain age, I just got to the point where all the sugar was just too much. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. know the last time that I've... I actually have some iron brew from Scotland that I save so that when I do like a really mm-hmm. hot day in lawn, I will have one of those to like celebrate when I'm done. Well, I kind of make my own mix at home. I, I take uh, club soda and mix it with some cran, uh, cranberry pomegranate juice, which is loaded with antioxidants and good stuff. And, of course, there's still sugar in it, but not nearly so much as in the over-the-counter sodas. That works. It does. It's very good. Charlene with uh, the Capital Humane Society is with us. And, Charlene, what's in your cup this morning? I have some Irish breakfast tea. Ooh, Irish Mm, breakfast tea. That sounds good. Yeah, it's tasty black tea. I like it a lot. Uh, is Santa Claus out and about regarding the Capital Humane Society? Oh, people and Santa have been so <laughs> generous. We are very fortunate. Um, we do have our tree up, and um, we're getting all kinds of great gifts for the animals, and we couldn't be more grateful. You know, cats love Christmas trees. <laughs> <laughs> and they can be dangerous. Yes, they, they can. Because they have the tinsel and the glass bulbs, and the whole thing can tumble over. Uh, so uh, we do have information on our website mm-hmm. at capitalhumanesociety.org about um, keeping pets safe during the holidays um, so that they don't get into trouble with all the decorations, including mm-hmm. the tree. Yeah, mom used to make us put the tinsel on the upper part of the tree because the cat would eat it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if it doesn't pass, it's an issue. Mm-hmm. Sure. I just saw a, a, a I, on Facebook, I have a couple of things they subscribe to that are Scottish in nature. And one was a family was so surprised when they got their Christmas tree home, they found an owl inside their tree. Oh, my. (laughs) (laughs) Merry Christmas. Yeah. (laughs) We've got Uh, some great cats for adoption today at the Capital Humane Society. I've got the cats for adoption page open. You guys and gals can follow along at capitalhumanesociety.org. And, Charlene, who's your first pick? We are going to start with Quartz, and that is a very handsome cat. I'm just clicking to the right page myself here. Uh, Quartz is all black, 
10 months old, a spayed female. You can see she's just bright and beautiful and hoping to be in a great warm home soon. That's quartz as in the crystalline rock. (laughs) Okay, so quartz uh, would be one of those cats that would show up if you have light-colored furniture. If you uh, have the lights turned off and dark-colored earth-tone furniture, mm-hmm. you'd probably have an invisible cat with a pair of eyes walking around. <laughs> Black hats are a lot of fun and very lovey-dovey. A beautiful yep. cat. And uh, tell us about Quartz's friend. Rebel is next. And Rebel is a pretty torby, so she has some torty going on and some tabby going on. Oh. She's about eight months old, uh, short hair, very charming and likes to come up and say hello and is looking to be someone's best friend. <laughs> pretty, pretty kitty. All mm-hmm. these cats, uh, the pictures, Jim, are just so great. Oh, yeah. I just <laughs> enjoy going to the page and looking at these great cats and kind of wondering about them. When you click on the, the thumbnail picture, there's more stuff that pops up too, folks. So, Okay, we've got a good twosome, Quartz and Rebel. Who's next? Dragon. And Dragon is about seven months old, a spayed female. Does She has the domestic short hair, pretty tabby markings. You can see she's very inquisitive, ready to play, and ready to prance and purr in a great new home. Yay, Dragon! What's what's that movie? How to take care of your dragon? How to how to tame a dragon? Whatever it is. Train or <laughs> how to train like your dragon? Yeah. I have a friend that's <laughs> highly into into dragons. I should send him this cat. Quartz rebel and dragon. Drag on, man. Drag, Drag on. on. You betcha. Okay, hours open today and tomorrow for these great cats. We will be open at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center today and tomorrow from eleven to five thirty. And are you getting ready or already ready for Christmas in your household, Charlene? Uh, we're, we're pretty much ready. We keep it pretty low-key, um, so we have a small gathering, and it, 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 I think we've got everything ready to go. I'm done with Christmas shopping. I just have to get some things wrapped now. So I think maybe mm. I'll come home from work tonight, and maybe have a cup of coffee after dinner, and, and dive into that and get all that done. What so, did you get me, Scott? Yeah. Um, I got you more good cheer, Jim. Oh, okay. I'll take good cheer. <laughs> so this is not a lump success. of coal. Nope. Uh, we've got dogs for adoption next and some great dogs up here at the page. Who do you want to start with? We'll start with Echo, E-K-K-O. Oh, yeah. Uh, two years old, a Labrador mix, a neutered male. He can be a little bit shy and nervous when he first meets you, and that's kind of what he looks like in the picture there. But then he warms up, and he's very smart and very energetic. So uh, we know the right family is out there for Echo. Yep, great, great dog for a couple of times a day walk. I know my friend Jimmy over here takes his dog out and walks his dog, so that's a good thing to do. Echo looking for a great home. It could be yours. His picture's up at capitalhumanesociety.org. And you got to talk about the dog right next to him, Felix. <laughs> Look at Felix's yeah. face and eyes. <laughs> Jimmy, I don't know if you can see that dog from here, yeah. but it's a husky with those blue eyes, and he's going, hey, hey, yeah, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm, yep. yeah, and mm-hmm. that's, that's, 
that's his yeah, that's definitely his personality. He does not sit still. He goes and goes and wants to play and play. So he might make an awesome running partner for someone and he definitely needs an active owner who is going to give him the exercise he needs. He's just a year old, a husky, and just has a ton of energy. So he needs somebody who understands that and can provide him with a happy home. Okay. Now that was my sort of like um uh uh, wild card I threw in there. So you go ahead and pick the next two now. Okay. <laughs> so we'll do Biscuit. And Biscuit's one of our smaller dogs, yeah. a little Chihuahua mix, two years old, um, a sweet, very, very shy dog. Doesn't really like you to <clears throat> pet him on his head. He's real nervous about that. So he's looking for someone who's skilled, who understands that um, he just needs a slow and gentle approach. Um, and then he will be your best little lap dog. Okay, he's a great-looking dog. His picture's up at CapitalHumaneSociety.org. We've got a great threesome so far, Echo, Felix, Biscuit, and then there's... We'll talk about Jake, and he is a handsome yellow lab, about a year old. Also a high-energy dog, uh, very smart and sweet, needs somebody to provide him with direction because he catches on very quick and is very motivated, motivated by a tasty snack. So he'll do well with somebody who knows how to train and treat dogs. He's almost got that posture like he's ready to lift that right leg and shake. Can you see yeah, that? He's got all this weight be. kind uh-huh. of on his left foreleg there, like he wants to shake. So he could be reaching out to, to you right now. Take a look at Jake, and you can click on that thumbnail picture, and more stuff pops up. Better yet, go out and see these great dogs today and tomorrow. And here's Charlene with hours open. Our Pylock Pet Adoption Center will be open on Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 530. Okay, Merry Christmas, Charlene, to you and the crew at the Capital Humane Society. We really appreciate our relationship with you. We appreciate everything you do. Merry Christmas to you. And we'll look forward to talking to you next week. That, that sounds wonderful. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Charlene and friends at the Capital Humane Society make them the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. I'm Scott Colborn, and you're listening to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. So one of the things that I use to get over a cold is the old um, standby of a half teaspoon of Arm & Hammer baking soda mixed into a glass of water and then consumed. And um, usually about 20 minutes later, there is this friendly belch that it it causes. Um, But the theory is is that when you alkalize your, your body, the cold or flu virus can't tolerate that. And uh, that's what I operate on. So for the last couple of days, it's been some good healthy food and the Arm & Hammer baking soda treatment because I've got an unusual cold. But I'm actually feeling a lot better. I think it's the proximity of Jim and and, uh, Jimmy here. So I I think that's what's doing it. Maybe you should turn up our mics so we can respond. (laughs) Yeah, I'll just leave yours down. Yeah, okay. Hey, you. Okay. Hey, you. Our next guest is Lloyd Arbach, and Lloyd is an author, a parapsychologist, and he's a teacher. He's taught at the collegiate level before. He's currently teaching online classes through the Rhine Education Center. Lloyd, it's great to talk to you. Morning, Scott. Good morning. How are things going out there on the West Coast? 
Uh, fine. Things are fine. Now we're, we're past fire season and gotten rainy season, so that's good. Good. Do you have any uh, plans for um, uh, talks in and around uh, the Christmas or New, Year, New Year's Eve time, Lloyd? No. I, you know, get, the, I think the last thing people want to hear, at least in the United States, is uh, anything to do with, with psychic stuff. <laughs> there Places don't have events. I know that it's a tradition in England, mm-hmm. of course, to tell ghost stories, especially on Christmas Eve, but it's not certainly not that here. I'm trying to remember the, the I, I don't know if it was Germany or Austria, but there was this uh, tradition a couple hundred years ago of this sort of scary Santa Claus that would get kids. And uh, <clears throat> That's Krampus, yeah. Krampus, there you go. Better watch out, kids, or else Krampus is going to get you. Yeah. So I was, I was raised with the traditional Santa Claus. Um, I uh, went to the Starworks USA UFO Symposium in November, Lloyd, and had a chance to briefly meet Russell Targ. And, uh, oh, okay. What he was talking about, again, is a topic that you and I have touched on before, the idea of remote viewing. And... Uh, he did a Skype interview with Uri Geller from Israel, and uh, he had Uri Geller uh, remote view a special object that he had. And so Uri Geller took a piece of paper, and he etched something that looked like sort of a rectangle with a little notch in the lower right corner. And he said, this is what I'm getting. And then Russell Targ held up his magnifier, his handheld magnifier. When it folds up in the case, it looked exactly like the dimensions that Uri had sketched. Pretty amazing. But you've seen this stuff before, haven't you? Yeah, and actually I did something with Uri. Although Uri was not the viewer, he was the viewee uh, a few years ago, a number of years ago. Um, Remote viewing is it's a form of clairvoyance. I mean, it's just a way that we talk about the ability to pick up information at a distance. That's the remote part. And, you know, beside the fact that we had a 22-year program that Russell was involved in early on, but not through the entire program uh, that the U.S. government ran, you know, that's, that's the subject of my book, uh, ESP Wars. Uh, the Russians did some work on that as well. And there was a lot of public work that was done by by people like Russell and Targ and Hal Putoff and Ed May and Dale Graff and other folks, um, showing that people could pick up information if you can get them past their <coughs> predilection to categorize, label, and do other things that we, we tend to process. Uh, it, it's not hard. I've done it with my students. It's not hard to teach. Not everybody can do it just because we have this actual idea. Um, we can't get past our own problems, <laughs> you might say, mm-hmm. the biases we have, the, educa- the way we process things. It, but it's actually not that hard to teach people. And uh, it's something that not, and it, it's interesting because when people do this, not everybody does it visually. Some people get verbal stuff, some people get sounds and other things. It's a, just an interesting ability that uh, folks like Ed May and Joe McMonagall and a few others are still doing work with today. And that would be part of the, the, the protocols to have, uh, if you could, two or three people that had a different 
approach and then have, if you will, kind of a triangulation uh, on a, a target so that you'd have these three different inputs to see where they dovetailed and or to give you a more complete picture. Um, I found it just... Yeah, that's the, that, I was just saying that's a consensus method, and that works really well. I found it just amazing that we had people in the audience. Uh, Russell held up a gym bag and said... I have a special object in this gym bag, and I want you all to take the piece of paper in front of you and the pencil and draw what I've got here in the gym bag. And uh, I kept getting a landscape scene, so I drew that. And then we did a third attempt, and uh, what I got was Taiwan, uh, or from Taiwan, question mark. And so he said, okay, let's find out what I've got in the, in the bag. And he pulled out this sort of giant wok ladle that was a part sieve uh, that, to allow the grease and oil to, to go through. Very large, very sturdy, you know, uh, uh, professional quality. And so I asked Russell if there was any tag that said from Taiwan on it. And he said, no, I can't find any tag like that. But Lloyd, it was amazing. Some of the people in the audience... Nailed it. They absolutely nailed it. Yeah, you know, yeah, it, it, it's something people can do with, without even realizing they can do it. Uh, although, of course, the difference between doing that in the, with the audience of a talk and what he <coughs> did with Uri is the difference between just general clairvoyance and remote viewing. Because it's kind of like the difference between a local call and a, and a long distance call. Mm-hmm. We don't ever call it remote viewing. We don't call it remote viewing if you're in the same room. Because there's nothing remote about that. That's a good point. Um, you just finished up a series of classes at the Rhine Education Center, and I went to their page to see if they've unloaded things yet for 2020. What do you've got coming up for plans for, for further classes? So the next class that's coming up, uh, which is the end of January that I'm teaching, is the Investigating the Paranormal class. And it's uh, really how to learning how to do field investigations or ghost hunting um, from a parapsychological perspective, including what we've been doing over the last hundred years and how it's evolved. And what we think these th- what we think of apparitions, hauntings, poltergeist, you know, ghosts, what they, we think they are. And, and also importantly, how to help people, how to actually uh, resolve the situations when people are having these experiences. And that's an eight-week class. And then in March, I'm teaching a four-week class on how to choose a psychic or medium and assess the reading. So really how to kind of get the most out of what you're doing if you're interested in getting a reading. Interesting. Um, let's see, RhineEducationCenter.org, is that correct? Yeah, or they can just go to RhineRHINE.org, and there is a link at the top that says Education. Okay. Uh, Lloyd, any special plans for either Christmas, New Year's, or early 2020 for you? No, I'm just starting to plan out what I'm doing, you know, some special things that we're doing in 2020. I've got uh, a Forever Family Foundation medium, Rebecca Love Cicero, coming out to the Bay Area in March. So we're going to do an event together there. I'll be doing a special class uh, for people who are interested in mediumship up in Seattle, the Seattle area, in April. 
got my rhyme classes. Uh, I'm actually teaching a class on parapsychology for the for Atlantic University. So uh, just just looking ahead, playing with things, and then I'm working with a couple producers behind the scenes on a couple of things projects they're doing. Um, that if they don't get morphed too much more by the networks, um, will see air in uh, probably early you know first half of. 2020. Mm-hmm. And Lloyd, for your books that you've got out, uh, some of w- that have been republished, do you have a favorite bookseller that you recommend? Well, usually I tell people to go to Amazon.com, uh, but you might, you know, you can easily go to Barnes & Noble or Books A Million. Those are the three kind of big guys on the, on the web um, that have most of my books. That are out in print right now, and the local bookstores can order them typically, but it's hard to ha- keep books on the shelves in the bookstores. Mm-hmm. You know, bookstore management is a little bit different. Um, how well I know I did that for nineteen years, uh, Lloyd. We yeah. appreciate our relationship with you, and uh, thank you for all your good work, uh, past, present, and in the future. All the best to you, Lloyd. You too. Happy holidays. And uh, Lloyd likes to say, may the force be with you. Okay, I'll raise your microphone, Jim. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Yeah, I bet that would be appropriate because there's a new Star Wars movie out this weekend. And w- when was the first one? Was it 1977? 76 or 77. Something like that. I saw it in the theater. Yeah, that's going back a few years. That is. I've, I've missed some of those, so I'm not a, a current... Trekkie, I can't, I can't reel them well, off. You can, you can uh, go binge on them all, and I think they're playing them on uh, on uh, one of the cable channels all weekend. Okay, uh, we've had a good start to the program. We're going to refill our coffee cups and allow you folks to do the same. We'll be back with our special guest, Reverend Doctor Jimmy Shelbourne, and we'll be talking about. Uh, gosh, what will we be talking about? Historicity. Yeah. Yeah. History. 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 Grace, grace, history, and more. Stay tuned. We've got a great show coming up for you on Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. This is Scott Colborne. I'd like to... Hold on. What? I'm going to wish everybody a Merry Christmas. Yeah, okay. Yes, I'll do the dishes. I'll be right there. Hi, this is Scott Colborne. I'd like to wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from all of us with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena, or as my friend Ray Boucher and Clyde Adams used to say, Exploding Unexplained Phenomena! Walk in beauty. And Merry Christmas to you and yours. With me is uh, Reverend Dr. Jimmy Shelbourne, and he's the Associate Pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church, and he was here about a year ago. And so we are calling this his annual visit. Fourth. Your fourth annual fourth visit. Annual, yeah. It started in 16. Yeah. He's, uh, he's a regular. And you're looking good for the four years that have passed? <laughs> Gee, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I'm uh, older. Yes. Well, we yes. all are. <laughs> so how come you still have a full head of hair? What's the, is it genetics? Genetics. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My, um, my father had big, big hair. Um, it, it was always white. I never remember him uh, with any color of hair other than 
white. I, I've seen pictures of when he had black hair, but mm-hmm. but uh, in my childhood memory, mm-hmm. he always had. Uh, I was a baby of the family, so he was getting a little older. But yeah, he always he always had white hair, and mine mine turned white pretty early too. I've uh, I've just uh, grown accustomed to the fact that you know it is mm-hmm. what it is right now for me. So well, I still, and, uh, my father had less hair than you have, Scott, and. My maternal grandfather had a full head of white hair up to the day he died. So I'm just, I'm kind of stuck in the middle between the two right now, I think. It's, yeah. Scott, it's just that your friends have to wear sunglasses to avoid the glare. <laughs> <laughs> I Typically at Westminster, I sit way down front and I thought about some of the people in the back that have to sort of like hold their hands up because of the <laughs> glare coming off the back of my head. <laughs> Wear a hat, Scott, please. <laughs> well, this is, a, this is a, a great occasion, Jimmy, to have you here, and it's really busy for you and for um, Reverend Dr. Putnam because you're very busy. You've got some... All, all pastors are this time mm-hmm. of year. <laughs> yeah, you've got some endurance stuff coming up here. Yeah. Um, Christmas Eve is going to be Tuesday night. Yep. And um, Westminster has got services at 5 o'clock and 5 8 and o'clock. 8, right. Um, and do you have a favorite? A favorite time? Well, um, I, I, kind of, I kind of like the, the later service. Um, myself, uh, when, when I was a, a minister in Kentucky, we had a, a service that started at 11 mm-hmm. p.m. Mm-hmm. in that church. And uh, we would be uh, finishing up at midnight. So uh, it really was Christmas. By the time we said the benediction and sent everybody home, it wasn't Christmas Eve anymore. It was Christmas Day. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I like that. But um, um, bowing to uh, uh, the times, I suppose, we, uh, we uh, aren't, aren't doing a service anywhere near that late. So families can get home and get their kids tucked in. And there have been years past that we've had snowstorms and near blizzards. And now uh, I think the prediction is is almost 50s for the weather forecast. It was only about oh, seven or eight years ago. I think we had such a blizzard in uh, Nebraska on Christmas Eve that I was still a pastor in Beatrice at that time. And every church in Beatrice canceled its uh, Christmas Eve service. There were you couldn't get out. I mean, it was just that bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jimmy, what was it like for you when you realized that, that you were uh, that you were going to be a minister? People well, refer to us being hearing a call. Yeah, for for me, um, I had a, a very uh, evangelical uh, uh, background growing up, and um, but I also. Um, somehow inherited a, a nice pair of, of running legs. <laughs> and um, after uh, my team won the state uh, cross-country championship in 1970, I started getting letters from colleges. And uh, the college I chose to attend was Hastings College, a uh, Presbyterian-related school. And I ran uh, track and cross-country at, at Hastings. And it started exposing me to a few uh, alternative ideas uh, about uh, Scripture. I joined the Presbyterian Church. I really uh, found it uh, to be uh, a church that I could relate to. Um, it um, uh, Sometimes Presbyterians are 
accused of being um, uh, Christians from the neck up because uh, it, 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 an emphasis on education and and uh, an educated clergy. But uh, that that was really was my bailiwick, and and uh, so after I had uh, been doing some volunteer work at the Presbyterian Church in Hastings, one thing led to another, and uh, shortly after I graduated from Hastings, I was off to seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. So, yeah, did you enjoy your experience in Louisville? Oh, absolutely! It was a good school, really good school, and I had great teachers. Uh, Want to talk a, a little bit about one of them in our uh, historicity section coming up here? But yeah, so I've got you know jumping right in. I've got friends that um, are intelligent, that uh, that mean well. When they ask me the question, uh, Scott, there is so much information out there. How can you be sure there was a historical Jesus? Um, isn't there a possibility that this was all a series of uh, tales that were layered on already existing holidays that people were celebrating? Uh, and to which I respond, um, I don't know, but there are people smarter than I am <laughs> that I can ask that question. And so part of my role has been faith-related mm -hmm. to depend upon people that I regard as being peers. And it's a question that years ago I asked Reverend Dr. Andrew McDonald the same thing. Um, and he said uh, that he was absolutely certain. So let's start the program off and talk about this, Jimmy, the historical nature sure. of, of Jesus. Uh, well, there's no question that uh, certainly the uh, celebration of the birth of Jesus is something that was layered onto uh, the existing Roman holiday of Saturnalis, uh, which corresponds closely to the winter solstice. And um, uh, but but Christmas was not observed in the church for the first several centuries. Uh, it was not seen. The celebration of Christmas was not seen as uh, an essential tenet of the faith, um, and and uh, uh, in the early uh, parts early centuries of the church. Really? No, no. Uh, so um, now the church celebrated Easter, and, I, and I'll be talking a little bit more about that from the, from the get-go. In fact, one of the reasons that uh, Christian worship is on Sunday is because every week the earliest disciples were celebrating a little Easter weekly, a, a little Easter on the first day of the week because uh, the experience they had of a risen Christ uh, came on the first day of the week. And it was uh, quite a change. Most of these earliest Christians were uh, Jewish uh, in background. And uh, for them to alter the pattern of worship from the seventh day to the, to the first day of the week was uh, really a, uh, a huge change, uh, um, earthquakey change mm -hmm. uh, in, in their understanding of, of, of what day was uh, hallowed. And, um, but, but, uh, <coughs> Easter was, was always, uh, understood as the important, uh, festival for the, for the church. Uh, Christmas comes much later, but, um, but to speak of historicity and, uh, the fact that there was a historical Jesus, I'd like to look at a couple of other characters. Um, how do we know, for instance, that there was a Moses? Well, one of the one of the uh, 
professors that I had at Louisville Seminary, Arnold Black Rhodes, said if there wasn't a Moses, there had to be somebody who did a lot of those things whose name was Moses. <laughs> um, otherwise, it's very hard to explain this movement of, of uh, the Haperu, that became known as the Hebrew, uh, escaped slaves from Egypt who uh, wander and uh, enter into Canaan and become a nation. And, uh, you know, if there wasn't a Moses, then there had to be someone that led this band of uh, uh, happy Roo slaves out of Egypt. And we have, uh, ec- uh, outside of the scriptures, we have uh, extra biblical um, corroborating evidence of, of these happy Roo, they're called, uh, who were slaves and who, who uh, fled from Egypt. Now, I, I don't doubt that there are, are certain embellishments to the Moses story and the Exodus story that uh, don't have complete historical basis. Uh, the, in, in, within the 10 plagues, for instance, uh, there is an early plague in which all the cattle of the Egyptians die. But the 10th plague is that the firstborn of all their cattle die. But if you think about that, that's kind of difficult to die twice. Uh, if, if all the cattle are dead, they don't have any calves to to die anymore so so there are some uh certainly some embellishments to that story but nevertheless the idea that there was a a movement of slaves out of egypt into canaan land uh somewhere probably about the 13th century before the common era that's that's got to be true because of the 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 people are there um similarly uh let's let's look at king david there are accounts of King David, who is one of the other most important persons in the Hebrew Scriptures. But um, uh, the, the accounts of, of David's life, uh, you know, show him uh, to be a man with feet of clay. Uh, he, he did some despicable things. Yeah, and um, and those, those accounts, uh, they, they don't gloss over uh, David's life. They are not uh, hero stories. Um, in in the sense of uh, King Arthur or Robin Hood, uh, they 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 show him to be very human, very vulnerable, and frankly, a, a sinner like the rest of us uh, in need of God's grace. So uh, you know, I'm I'm absolutely convinced of the historicity of Moses and the historicity of David. But to turn to the historicity of Jesus of Nazareth, first of all, there is also extra biblical corroborating evidence from a historian of that era. Uh, we call it the first century A.D. because we now date everything from uh, the life of Jesus. But that also came many centuries uh, later. Um, at, the time of, uh, at the time of Jesus' life, uh, time was counted by the Romans in what they called ab urbo condito, or from the founding of the city of Rome, uh, urb uh, meaning the city. And so it was uh, the 8th century in ab urbo condito when uh, Jesus was alive uh, in, in uh, Roman-occupied uh, Judea. And uh, Josephus was a Jewish historian of that very century, and there's corroborating evidence of the life of Jesus and his early followers and their claims uh, from this uh, Joseph, uh, Josephus. I'm sorry, there was a... Crackle in there. That was me hitting the microphone. Oh, okay. Just my head. <laughs> Beating oh, his head so, against the microphone. Sorry, okay. sorry folks, if you <laughs> just right. experienced that. Boom. Yeah. Well, in addition to that, 
in addition to that, the Gospels uh, follow fairly close uh, be, behind the uh, time of the life of Jesus. We conventionally think of the life of Jesus, his ministry, being uh, from about 27 to 30 A.D. If he was born a few years before uh, 1 A.D., uh, the the um, Dionysius Eusebius, who first did the calculations to come up with uh, when, when Anno Domini was, ma- made a couple of uh, small errors. And so um, most biblical scholars uh, presume that Jesus was born sometime between four and six years before the uh, end of the common or before the common era began, so um, uh, we we think that Jesus' three-year ministry was probably about 27 to 30 uh, A.D. or common era, and um, the first gospel written, Mark, was probably written about 65 A.D. So it's only a few decades later, mm-hmm. and uh, the other more narrative um, gospels of Matthew and Luke uh, were written probably around 80 to 85 A.D. Um, using some of the material uh, directly copied out of out of Mark, John comes a little later, but these are still within uh, decades of the life of Jesus and within the lifetime of some people who would have who would have remembered him. Um, in one thirty Common Era, an early church father named Papias uh, wrote about Mark's account, showing that Mark's account was already in quite common circulation. And Papias uh, deemed Mark's account to be a reliable source about Jesus. And yet he knew that uh, Mark had not been an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. He was uh, Peter's, he had been a companion of uh, the Apostle Paul at one time. And then later uh, in Rome, he served as Peter's translator so that uh, Peter, who probably did not speak Latin, uh, was able to. Um, uh, converse yeah. with with the people in Rome, um, and so uh, as his translator, he received a lot of firsthand information from Peter and wrote these down. And the, this early church father Papias says he wrote these things down without particular concern of when uh, uh, the chronological order of when the uh, events in Jesus' life actually happened, uh, because frankly, Mark didn't know. Um, he 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 made his own arrangement. Uh, of, of, of how those events uh, uh, would have flowed. But uh, it, we, do, we do find that within the early part of the second century common era, uh, there's already uh, uh, a regard for Mark's gospel as a fairly accurate account of, of what Jesus said and did. But even earlier, there are uh, what we call charismatic passages that appear in Paul's letters. Now, Paul's earliest letters are... Uh, to the Thessalonians, and they were written probably late in the um, fifth decade or the late 40s mm. A.D., and um, uh, there are uh, uh, some, most of his other letters were in the next decade, the sixth decade or the 50s, and uh, one of these is Philippians. And uh, if, if uh, you would permit me, I am going to read a passage that Paul is quoting from an early church hymn. And uh, this is a, a, a statement that we believe is a, one of these charismatic passages that go back even before the, the first letters of Paul. Um, Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, 
but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Being born in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him a name above every other name. Now, th- that charismatic uh, passage was had to have been in rather common circulation before the letters of Paul to these uh, early churches in the Mediterranean region uh, because Paul is quoting it and assuming that his readers probably are aware of it. It would be like uh, if, if you or I would uh, quote from uh, some great American poem or from the Star-Spangled Banner. We, we know that uh, everyone knows uh, what, what, uh, what common source that we are, we are quoting from. So um, it um, had to have been in circulation for Paul to quote it, and it's a very uh, early uh, description of the incarnation that was later formulated in the creeds, but it does show that the early church, uh, within just the first few decades of uh, the crucifixion, uh, understood uh, Jesus as uh, living and being sent from God. Um, So... Uh, it, it, was there a, 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 an historical Jesus? Absolutely. No question. Have there been documentaries on uh, various channels uh, that seem to point towards archaeological ruins that also um, suggest the well, historicity? I'm, a, of- I'm, 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 aware, I'm aware of, um, of an uh, ossuary box. Um, and what is an ossuary box? Box of bones. Box a box of bones. Of bones. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, they're not very big. They're uh, about as big as, as say, uh, uh, a boot box, cowboy boot box. You know. Mm-hmm. Okay. In in the ancient uh, Mediterranean world, uh, people weren't buried forever. In fact, uh, in in uh, uh, some parts of the Mediterranean world, they're still not buried forever. They're they after about two decades in the earth, they uh, they're bones are dug up, mm-hmm. having uh, all the fleshy parts now having completely de- decomposed, and then the, uh, the bones are um, assembled into a much smaller uh, container than a human body could possibly fit into if it were anything more than bones, and uh, this is an ossuary box. And uh, what archaeologists have found <coughs> is an ossuary box um, that... Um, it, it uh, has has inscribed on it that it is uh, the bones of we we say James, but uh, actually Jacobus uh, was would have been his uh, the the Greek uh, uh, transliteration of his Jewish name um, uh, Yaakov, um, and uh, there's a long story of how in the world does the word the name James Jim that's that's kind of yeah. our basis, mm-hmm. but. The Yachabus was the Greek form of Yaakov, uh, the mm-hmm. Hebrew name, uh, Jacob. And, uh, but it comes into Latin as Yakamus rather than Yakabus. And that okay. M then becomes the M in James. That's why King James, all the Jameses of Scotland, uh, from uh, uh, James I, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th, we call that the Jacobean era, mm-hmm. uh, even though th- they use the name James. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, interesting, th- yeah. hey, th- this is a, uh, just a little uh, 
See, this, extra this is tidbit. Why I, this is Just why a little I find extra this, this so fascinating. How, how in the world? How in the world does Jacob become mm-hmm. James? Well, it, it's because Yakamus in in Hebrew or in in Latin. Sorry. Anyway, uh, the the inscription on this ossuary, Scott, is that the bones belong to Yakabus, the brother of Yeshua, and the son mm-hmm. of Yosef. Now, who's Yeshua is Jesus. Yeshua bar Yosef. Yeah, Yeshua bar Yosef. Joseph, uh, Jesus, the son of Joseph, right. And and this ossuary box is inscribed that way. Now, these are common enough names that it might have been that there was another Jacob Mm -hmm. who had a brother named Yeshua or Joshua who... And they had a father named Joseph. That's That's all possible. But... It comes from that exact same era, and uh, the brother of, of Yeshua, or Jesus, was, was James, or Yachabus, who was a, a leader of the early Jerusalem church. Uh, it's not the same James as the son of Zebedee, who was one of the early martyrs of the church, but this is James, the brother of Jesus, who was the leader of the uh, early uh, church in Jerusalem, who sometimes butted heads with the apostle Paul over uh, certain... <laughs> certain aspects of how Christians ought to behave, uh, Paul being a little more liberal than Jacobus or James was. But uh, anyway, it, 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 is very, it is very compelling to, to want to say, mm-hmm. okay, here's, here's the ossuary box of Jesus' brother, you know? Uh, so, yeah, there is archaeological things like that. When we come back from the top of the hour break, we'll talk also about um, first-person testimony. We have people saying that they saw Jesus, that they um, were one of his disciples, and or we can have revelatory experiences like what Paul experienced himself. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, This is Reverend Dr. Jimmy Shelbourne, and he's the associate pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church for our annual visit and conversation today. You can find out more about Westminster at westminsterlincoln.com. Org. I'm Scott Colborn with Jim Shorney and Reverend Dr. Jimmy Shelbourne. You guys and gals, stay tuned. We'll be right back after this. Our guest today is Reverend Dr. Jimmy Shelbourne. And Jimmy, let's. Uh, where do we go next? Well, we we were um, uh, just explored the historicity of the historical Jesus. There really was a Jesus. It's not a not an invented character. Um, he, he's as real as Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, if you turn to the faith statements that are behind the uh, New Testament Gospels, though, um, that he is the Son of God and that he was raised from the dead, um, th- these are statements that, uh, while they are not verifiable in the sense that you can uh, prove them to a skeptic uh, beyond the shadow of a doubt, uh, I do want to explore a little bit about the reliability of the uh, witnesses uh, to uh, the resurrection. And as I said earlier, the early uh, church celebrated Easter from the get-go um, because uh, it, it was such a, a, a nerve-shattering, life-changing experience for these uh, apostles who, who the disciples were scared, uh, timid, uh, uneducated guys uh, who, who were hiding out. And then suddenly they come out as bold as as can be uh, with their uh, declaration that uh, Jesus, though he was 
crucified and they had seen him crucified, they see saw him dead and buried without a doubt that uh, that um, uh, that he was alive and they had experienced him as a, uh, as alive. And um, uh, I want to uh, explore a little bit that that conviction that be- is behind the existence of the church, because without that conviction, uh, unless those disciples, uh, if, the, if they didn't have that conviction, there would be no church, and we wouldn't be, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. Yeah. Why, why would a bunch of guys and some women, why would they all get together and foment a lie and then try to perpetrate that? Well, there's, there's, several, uh, there's, there's several possibilities uh, uh, to, that, that have been floated uh, to discount uh, their, uh, their witness of a, a living Jesus. Uh, one um, is that uh, they're liars, um, that they made it up, and they, uh, they just, just decided to make this whole thing up. Um, uh, well, the problem with that um, is uh, that almost to a person, with the exception perhaps of uh, the apostle John, uh, who tradition says died of old age, but all, all the other apostles uh, died a martyr's death with the conviction that Jesus was their risen living Lord. Now, a group of people will die for something that they sincerely believe in, but they're not likely to face martyrdom and death for something that they know is untrue. So the idea that these guys were all making it up, uh, just made it up, uh, is, is really um, hard to believe. I'm incredulous about that. Um, or perhaps they were mistaken. Well, either, either if they were liars or were simply mistaken, maybe they went to the wrong tomb and they saw an empty tomb and they said, whoa, it's empty, cool, right, okay, well, the claims that they made within weeks of this happening were disruptive in uh, Jerusalem, very disruptive in Jerusalem. And the one thing that uh, the Pax Romana did not like was disruption. Uh, they, they, wanted, they wanted tranquility, yep. Pax Romana. Uh, and, and it wasn't a true peace, the Roman peace, Pax Romana. It was a heavy-handed uh, oppressive peace. And uh, uh, if Jesus were really dead and they were either lying about it or mistaken, then the Roman authorities, who would have had every reason to do so, could have and would have produced Jesus' body and prove that the claim that these early disciples were making, and again, within weeks of uh, the events, uh, they could have proved that they were wrong. And said, "You say he's risen. Guess what? Here's his body. You know. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, they 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 would have had the ability to exhume him. They, if they could have, they would have, but they didn't. So I I don't think that they were mistaken. Um, although one uh, skeptic said that, well, maybe Jesus didn't really die. Maybe." Maybe they thought he was dead, and they put him in a tomb. That his wounds, you know, made him look dead, and they put him in a tomb. 
And the coolness of the tomb kind of revived him. And after a day or two, he thought, hey, I'm feeling pretty good. Um, <laughs> I think I'll go out and tell these guys I'm alive. Well, the problem is, if you know anything about uh, the flagellation that Jesus endured and the, and the process of crucifixion, it would take weeks in a modern intensive care ward to bring anybody who had somehow managed to survive mm. that flagellation and that crucifixion to bring them back uh, to anywhere near um, uh, a state of health. And uh, the idea that uh, this uh, man, after uh, enduring such uh, violence, could have convinced this uh, scared group of disciples that he was the Lord of life and was the risen one um, and victorious, that's, in, that's impossible to believe too. So, um, no, I don't think Jesus, um, Jesus really, truly was, uh, was dead. Now, uh, there's who one other... It? Who was yeah. it, Jimmy, that went to the tomb to, um, to either uh, anoint and put linens on the body of Jesus that well, discovered that... He was, well, he was buried uh, on Friday by Joseph of Arimathea, okay, and uh, who was assisted by Nicodemus, who was a member of the council, um, uh, the, according to the, to the Gospels. And, uh, um, uh, but Nicodemus had become a believer. He had gone to Jesus by night, according to the witness of John the Apostle. He had gone to Jesus by night, secretively, to, uh, to inquire, and Jesus... Uh, told him that he had to be born anew or born from above. And uh, Nicodemus, uh, you know, couldn't, couldn't get, he, he was too literal about it. And he said, how can I, I'm full grown. How can I enter my mother's womb? <laughs> uh, but Nicodemus had become uh, a believer and with uh, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, probably a, uh, a, a disillusioned uh, Nicodemus and a disillusioned Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus' body on Friday. On the first day of the week, on Sunday, uh, the, the tomb was visited by women uh, unaware that Jesus' body had already been perfumed by Nic Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, and they brought uh, spices uh, to perfume the body. And um, it was these women who first um, uh, discovered that the tomb was empty. Now, according to Luke in his gospel, they ran and told the disciples who were up hiding from the Romans in the upper room. And they said, you know, the tomb is empty. And uh, we've been told he's risen. And it says right there, and th this is a, a very telling thing in the Gospel of Luke, uh, kind of telling like those uh, non-glossed over stories about David, you know, what a, what a jerk David was, really. But it, it says... The apostles or the disciples considered what they told them to be an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Mm. You know, they didn't jump. They didn't jump to embrace it and say, "Oh, good, great." Let's run and take a look. Yeah, they they were very skeptical, and so the disciples had to be convinced against their will that this was true. And so um, uh, John and Peter uh, made their way to the tomb to. Uh, uh, to, to look as well, uh, according to the Gospels. And um, um, uh, 
So, so they, they uh, were also witnesses to, to the empty tomb. And um, um, <clears throat> the, the, the um, other, other uh, possibility is that um, um, the early apostles were uh, lunatics. This is the one possibility I hadn't mentioned yet, Scott. Uh, and um, that, that uh, they, the, a lunatic will die for a crazy belief um, uh, without, without realizing that it's a lie. Um, uh, a lunatic will make uh, in, incredible mistakes. Um, but um, the, 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 the thing bread that, that they ate contained the uh, uh, tainted wheat germ uh, Lysergic acid diphenylamine. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and, and so they, they were on were a they were on a trip. Yeah, they were on and, a trip, and they were they were crazy. Well, the, the the problem with that is is the the literature that is left, called the New Testament, the literature that these men left, is among the most sublime ethical uh, literature in all of human history, and uh, let me just read a one of the most Please famous passages a passage that many listeners will be familiar with because they hear it at weddings, okay? <clears throat> if I speak with the tongues of mortals or angels but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as even to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away my possessions and hand my body over to be burned as a martyr, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious, boastful, nor arrogant, nor rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It, it does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the right. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You know, that's so sublime. These are not ravings of, of a lunatic, you know, um, so, you know, the, the idea that the uh, early disciples were just uh, a bunch of madmen is uh, really uh, not to be believed either. Who was it that first then saw the, uh, the resurrected Jesus? Well, uh, the first person, according to the Gospels, that actually experienced the risen Jesus would have been Mary Magdalene, in, according to John. Uh, but... Uh, also, in the uh, Gospel of Luke, it says that the risen Jesus appeared in the upper room to the disciples uh, that evening, and uh, then uh, later to uh, uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus. But uh, one of the things that the Apostle Paul explores in his letter to the Corinthians is that the risen body is not like the uh, mortal body. Um, and apparently, uh, what, whatever form of resurrected uh, uh, presence that the uh, early disciples had experienced, it was not uh, the same uh, corporeal body that you and I have because uh, Jesus could uh, pass through doors without opening, opening them, okay? Talk about unexplained mm -hmm. phenomena, mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, Paul, say, Paul says it, it, it's very mysterious. It's sown a mortal body. It's, it's raised an immortal body. And he, he understands that it has 
uh, it has a, a certain reality to it. It's not just a ghost or something like that, but it is. Uh, but the, but it it has different physical uh, properties than your body or mine. You know. So uh, in these resurrected uh, resurrection experiences, um, uh, it was a a risen Christ who who could uh, come and go uh, w- without the kind of limits that. Uh, you and I have. We have to get in a car to uh, suddenly be in, in a different place, right? Now, the, the the other thing is that the Apostle Paul, in his um, letter to uh, one of the letters that he wrote to um, uh, Christians who were living in Corinth, he notes that um, he he had he has received this testimony from the other disciples. Um, and so I'm passing on to you what I in turn have also received, that Christ died for our sins and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. He appeared later to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom, he says, are still alive. So uh, by the time Paul was writing uh, the church in Corinth in the uh, middle of the uh, uh, sixth decade uh, in the common era, um, there were still witnesses uh, who who could remember having experienced the risen Christ before um, uh, the uh, appearances stopped after forty days, according to uh, uh, church tradition. This is Reverend Dr. Jimmy Shelbourne, associate pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church, and we're exploring the historical nature of Jesus. Uh, the show is aptly named Exploring Unexplained Phenomena because I, I want folks to really get a sense that if, if you take that step forward and accept the premise that God was incarnate in Jesus and walked on the earth, it's incredible. Well, yes. I mean, it's 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 like an invasion of human history. It's the biggest unexplained phenomenon <laughs> yeah, story that uh, I know yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Um, so let's uh, let's wrap up this part, and then when we come back from our break here, we'll talk about grace and presence. I think grace and presence. Yes. Yeah, sure. Um, and all these people that you've mentioned, uh, with the exception of I think it was John. They all died fairly violently. Yeah, martyr, martyr's death, right. Uh, and none of them... Recanted. Said, recanted. No. no. They said, yep, this is the way it is. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, let's also talk, too, when we come back, um, about uh, the gifts that we now enjoy as a result of this knowledge, uh, a.k.a. the, the good news. Sure. Okay, folks, hope you're enjoying this annual conversation. I'm Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. We're going to take a break here. I'm feeling better than my voice sounds. I'm just at the tail end of a cold, but I'm getting better and better thanks to the camaraderie and fellowship and the energy of Sulawesi coffee. So we'll be right back after this. Please stay tuned for more. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Next week's guest is Carol uh, Fleet. And we're going to be talking about a new year, a new year, a new you. 
There we go. A new year, a new you. Toy boat, toy boat, toy boat. There we go. Our guest this morning is Reverend Dr. Jimmy Shelbourne. And um, we've looked at the historical nature of Jesus, the incredible event that was God incarnating as Jesus walking the earth, dying a, a terrible death. What was the what was the purpose of the death? Uh, you would think that that God, being omnipotent, most powerful, at the time of Jesus's uh, near crucifixion, the armies of angels would have descended and vanquished the foe and would have held Jesus up. There's and, a certain necessity to the cross to, so that we could understand the cost, the, the, the great cost of grace. Um, otherwise, otherwise if, our forgiveness would be cheap. Um, human sin causes suffering. And God is willing in the cross to absorb the suffering that sin causes. On, one of the scriptures is uh, on the cross at Golgotha. Jesus bore the effects of human sin so that we could be dead to sin and alive to all that is good. And uh, it, it, what, what it really means, the incarnation slash crucifixion, is that God is taking the worst that human life can dish out and absorbing it and clutching it into the divine self and saying, I love you. It is God. Wow. It is God expressing love by absorbing, uh, absorbing the violence that we do to one another. I believe that. And that's part of the good news. Yes. What, what I what I want to explore a little bit is about the, the what I believe has to be the gracious presence of God, not only in that human story that that we know here on on Earth. Uh, in the form of Jesus, but I want to explore uh, a little bit about how God's presence must be equally for the entire universe. Mm. And I want to start by by just noting, um, and, and I know you have a friend, uh, Janet uh, Lundgren, is it? Yeah, Dr. Janet Lundgren. Lundgren, Lundgren, mm -hmm. who's a Jungian psychologist, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, ab above his door in Switzerland, Carl Jung had an inscription in Latin, and I'm going to show off by reading the Latin, right? <laughs> vacatus atque non vacatus deus ederit. Okay? And it means called upon or not called upon. God is present. In other words, we don't have to summon up God for God to be present. It's not our invocation of God that brings God into uh, presence in the created order of things. God is there. Sometimes we recognize it, sometimes we don't recognize it. Sometimes we call upon God, sometimes we don't call upon God. The Gospels note that God marks the, the fall of a sparrow and, uh, and every hair of your head is numbered. Um, that kind of awesome uh, omniscience and 
uh, omnipresence uh, is just stunning to me. Um, and I don't know how a sparrow could, could summon up the knowledge and presence of God, um, uh, although by chirping, perhaps, uh, perhaps that is the sparrow's prayer. But um, uh, wh- whether God is called upon or not called upon, uh, God is present, not only in our world and in our human history, but I believe that uh, the, the gracious presence of God is for non-human life within uh, this earth. Um, w- w- when when um, we, we read the passage in the prophet Isaiah about universal peace, uh, it's portrayed as the wolf lying down with the lamb and uh, the child playing over the adder's den and no, no harm comes. Uh, there seems to be this gracious presence that has implications for uh, animal life as well as for human life. And because we now live in this century, and we're coming on to the year 2020, right, Jim? Mm Mm-hmm. Just days away, right? Yeah, days away. Scott, 2020. Next decade. Okay. A hundred years ago, before Edwin Hubble discovered them, we thought there was one galaxy. It would be daft to say galaxies in the plural before Hubble discovered that there were other galaxies. My father, my father was born when there were not galaxies. But after Edwin Hubble, there are galaxies. And we have, uh, in the last hundred years, since 1920, we have uh, vastly uh, un- uh, changed our understanding of how deep space is and how many stars are out there, and the vastness of the universe. And so uh, as we uh, claim the gracious presence of this uh, divine source of being, by which I think all things exist, um, I think we we need in the church a Christology uh, that uh, will be adequate for the challenge that... I think will come someday, maybe not in my lifetime or yours, but I think will come someday when we have definitive messages from extraterrestrials someplace out there in the form of of radio signal, most likely, or a visit, whatever, if they have uh, a way of of, uh, transporting themselves that we can't uh, imagine. Uh, with with our limited understanding of physics, but I can I can speak to that. Yeah, um, sure. <laughs> uh, that's that's part of sort of our mission here is to 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 talk it's, about uh, that. And just as we've had um, people that were reliable witnesses for the um, birth, life, and death of Jesus, um, people that um, whose testimony would hold up in a court of law. We have uh, people from all walks of life who have close up seen and experienced phenomena mm-hmm. that can't be explained through uh, earthly technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a Presbyterian minister, Reverend Barry Downing, he wrote Jimmy in 1968 of uh, the Bible and flying saucers. So he, he looked at uh, scriptural references descriptions by people using the best of their ability, the language and semantics of their time to describe their encounters with um, unexplained phenomena. Mm-hmm. 
and compared that with modern-day UFO reports and found there was a striking similarity. Mm-hmm. So we, we can look towards the stars, but I think we've already had, I'm, I'm very confident we've already had contact. Okay. Well, the, the, the thing is, is, is whether we uh, are, all of us are convinced of that <coughs> contact it being in the past rather than the future, um, we have to have a Christology or an understanding of, of uh, the, the eternal logos wanting to manifest itself within the life of, uh, of, of created beings. That's well said. Like uh, that. we, we have to have uh, an understanding that, that, that this could happen in some other uh, form in some other planet so that the eternal word of God, the logos, that became flesh in our human history could also be enfleshed in some manner in some other uh, uh, non-terrestrial uh, history. Um, but, you know, the, the thing about the Jewish and Christian scriptures, the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, is that the most frequent promise that uh, any, any character in those, in those scriptures encounter. And, you know, the scriptures are mostly stories of, of, uh, of people of faith, uh, from Abraham to Moses, Jacob, prophet Elijah, Jesus, the apostles. They're, they're, they're mostly stories. And um, the, the promise that, that has received from God that is most frequent is God's promise. Uh, Jacob received it when he was fleeing from his brother, um, because he had cheated his brother out of his brother's inheritance. <laughs> and naturally, you want to get away from your brother who wants to kill you, right? So he, he's, on, he's on the lamb. He's, he's running, and he, and he lays his head down on a rock and has this dream of a ladder going into heaven and a promise coming from God, I will be with you. And that is um, uh, the, um, the promise that Jacob gets, and, and it's a promise that Moses gets at the burning bush. It's a promise that Elijah gets in a still, small voice when he didn't find God in the earthquake or the fire or the wind. Um, it is the promise of Christmas, in fact, in the name of Emmanuel, God with us. And um, what I want to say is that God's gracious presence is universal. It's throughout, got to be throughout creation because God is responsible is for all things. Um, he's the, God is the ground of all being, as, as Tillich would have put it. Uh, and, and I believe that we are preceded by grace. We are at every moment in the midst of that gracious presence. And as time unfolds, we are led by that gracious presence. And I think, Scott, Jim, I think that's why in this world and in our, uh, at least in our Western world, that the hymn Amazing Grace is the universal favorite hymn. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm trying to think by memory, uh, 2005, 2006, the Vatican newspaper published an article by the chief Vatican astronomer. And the title of the article was, The Alien is My Brother. Uh, And the uh, priest was not writing about somebody from across a national boundary 
a alien because they don't live nearby. Uh, he was referring to uh, people from, and I'm pointing up in the air now, from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am personally, that's where I am interested these days, is those theological discussions taking place. Because I agree with you, Jimmy, there is a ground of all being. Yes. And it's humanity that tries to limit God's creation. Yeah, and, and, and try to claim that salvation or God's presence is only for people, uh, uh, only for human history. Uh, and, there's only oh, one galaxy. And there's only one galaxy, or the earth is flat, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, we, we, our God, for, for, for an awful lot of people in the church, their God is too small. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a, a title of a book by J.B. Phillips years ago, uh, Too Small of a God. Uh, we, we have to expand what, our understanding of, of uh, the vastness of God just as we have uh, a new understanding of the vastness of the universe. Mm-hmm. And that uh, uh, God's gracious intention um, cannot be limited uh, to our little speck uh, of the universe. Mm. It, it, it's got to be bigger than that. I'm interested in reports uh, of extraordinary personal experiences or peak transcendent experiences that can be manifested in a whole variety of ways. And it it seems to me that in each of these instances, there is a glimmer or an aspect of God's presence showing up. It may be the more than casual synchronicity of meeting somebody or seeing somebody that you haven't seen for a long time right after you just thought about them. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, there they are. Uh, or uh, wondering about your, your uh, high school classmate that you haven't talked to, and the phone rings, and you pick it up, and there they are. Sure. Um, so I think that these synchronicities are, are a playfulness, if you will, of God saying, hey. And it's, it's, a, it's a wake-up call, I think. I'm, I'm with you on that. Do you remember our topic a year ago? We were talking about uh, 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 prescient dreams. Okay, sure. And, uh, uh, you know, having a dream that kind of foretells. Mm -hmm. And um, I told you the story. uh, And what you just said reminded me so much of of the story I told about how uh, on uh, one March when I was a pastor in Beatrice, I'd had a pastoral friend who was at St. John Lutheran Church die suddenly of an aortal aneurysm. Sorry to hear that. And uh, we, we, we had been very tight. We had uh, even taken a vacation together. Um, and um, I was a pallbearer at his, at his funeral at the Lutheran Church there. And um, so a year later, one year to the day later, I was thinking about Phil a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mind was all wrapped around Phil. Um, and I dreamed that night that my doorbell rang and I could hear Phil's voice and I was instantly filled with, with anger towards him because uh, like, like Sherlock Holmes, he pretended to be dead. And you know, the anger of Watson when he, when he discovered that, that Holmes wasn't dead. And I, I ran out there to give him a piece of my mind for 
putting us through all this grief for a year. And I got out there, and it wasn't Phil that had rung the doorbell. It was an old friend from school days years ago. And I told my spouse at the time (laughs) about the dream at breakfast. And then later that day, she received a call from this friend's wife. And he had died that night. Mm. And I believe the dream was sent to me by that gracious presence Mm -hmm. to let me know that my friends were okay Mm -hmm. in the post-mortal sphere that they were now in. Um, Jesus, as I understand his teachings, uh, his main message is one of love. Uh, And an opposite of that is fear. We have in the world, as I see it, a rising energy of fear, of untrustworthiness in a political sense, in a personal dynamic. Uh, We see it played out um, regionally, nationally. Sure. Um, So I'd like to fear makes us makes us start collapsing in on ourselves rather than opening our arms to welcome those uh, who are also in our world, those who may be a little different than we are. Mm. Uh, But fear makes us, makes us uh, circle the wagons and uh, uh, try to protect ourselves um, and uh, uh, keeps us from being charitable with one another. And it's, 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 it's part of the reason I think that uh, public dialogue in our era has become so uncivil and, uh, and nasty uh, is, is because people are afraid and uh, uh, they, they, they can't quite get a handle on their fear. And uh, so th- their instinct is simply uh, self-preservation at all costs. In, in, in those moments, it's good for me to remind myself that there is a larger reality at work absolutely that i need to uh connect to to understand and to try to to do my best to bring that into that moment that dynamic so that i can choose carefully what i say and do um sometimes i fall flat on my face i'm (laughs) i'm pretty good at that well like david we all have feet of clay (laughs) oh yes we do but you know, Jesus said, "Those who would save their life will lose it." And uh, you know, the story of the of the fellow who uh, had uh, some gold bullion in an attaché case, and he he uh, chained the attaché to his wrist when he was on a boat because he didn't want to lose it. But when the boat sank, he sank with the attaché mm-hmm. case. So in our remaining minutes, let's talk about the, um, the gift of grace, um, the gift that Jesus has given us, the good news, and how we might do best remember that. Well, what, it, it, you know, you gave me a quote uh, that, that I really love from C.S. Lewis. 
that um, uh, God does not love us because we are good, uh, but rather God seeks to make us good because God loves us. And, and you know, that's the priority. The, the prior thing is God's gracious presence and gracious love. Uh, and uh, we, we don't deserve it. We don't earn it. But it's given to us. That's what grace means. It's, mm. uh, you can't earn grace. Grace is a given. And I would say to all the people listening that, um, that a community of believers is a good thing. I, I don't have the C.S. Lewis quote at hand, but he wrote about being present in a group of believers, and there is a, a silent wireless that's taking place that you get plugged into. And I've always called it um, trying to benefit by os- osmosis, being present in a place and getting mm-hmm. that, that, that fellowship, that energy, that spirit. So I would wish everybody to each his own that you can find a community of believers and enjoy that, that spirit, that fellowship, that camaraderie, um, Having said that, tell us about Westminster and 5 o'clock and 8 o'clock on Tuesday night. Well, we'll be celebrating the uh, birth of Christ, of course, with uh, lots of traditional hymns. Uh, The Nebraska Brass is playing at both services. Uh, The Westminster Choir will sing at the second service at 8 o'clock, and children will sing at the uh, 5 o'clock service. But uh, Nebraska Brass at both services, and they are excellent. And there's nothing like uh, some of those fine Christmas carols being accompanied by a brass choir. That's just really fantastic. I agree. I agree. Um, Closing comments, Jimmy, on the gift that Jesus continues to give us. Well, uh, another quote from C.S. Lewis that I love. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, and to you, Jim. And to you. I'm Scott Colborn. Uh, this has been Exploring Unexplained Phenomena with Jimmy Shelbourne. And uh, you can find out more about Jimmy and about Westminster at the website, westminsterlincoln.org. And I am feeling better regardless of how my voice sounds, and I will continue feeling better. Stay tuned for Beta Radio. We've got a a fun program coming up at 12 noon. More great things here on KZUM as the day progresses. And uh, speaking of end of year giving from now through December 31st, your donation towards uh, uh, sustaining KZUM Radio really helps us. Uh, We've got thank you gifts also, just in time for gift giving, if you will. You can give a gift in somebody else's name as well. As we look towards 2020, help make KZM Radio uh, a success by making a year-end contribution now. The phone number is 402-474-5086, extension 1, or securely online at kzm.org. And uh, we thank you so much for listening. Uh, next week's guest is Carol Fleet, and we'll be talking about a new year, a new you. And we'll have a whole list of things to consider and to not consider, as importantly, as we look towards a new decade. Um, 
a lot of school kids are out now, and uh, they don't go back until after the first of the year. So I've been around some of them, and they've been delighting and reminding me that they're telling their friends, not only will they see their friends next year, but they'll see their friends in the next decade. <laughs> and suddenly sure. that's making it more real for me, too. Wow. Mm-hmm. Or as we say, wowie zowie. So, Jimmy, thank you very much. Um, I always enjoy your, uh, your sermons. And, and thank you. Thanks for being thanks, here. Thanks, Scott. I, I appreciate the invitation. And, Jim, what do you got coming up the rest of the weekend for yourself? Relaxing and enjoying the nice weather. Okay. And everything else in the Shorney household doing good? Pretty good, yeah. Give my best to Alex. I will. And to quote the song, God rest ye merry, gentlemen. (laughs) Thanks for listening. I'm Scott Colborne. Until next week, walk in beauty.